presents First Years, a podcast for all but geared toward adult first-time readers of Harry Potter, who need a space to enjoy each book and have adult conversations about it. My name is Sarah, and I'm honored that you've allowed me on this journey with you. Crack open a butterbeer, grab a seat, and let's discuss. Today, we're talking about second chances and the Triwizard Clue. Welcome, everybody, to episode 38 of First Years. Today, we are going over chapters 24 and 25 of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. So last episode, we talked about the Yule Ball, and I had my friend Jess on. And this, these two chapters start out post-Yule Ball, and we had talked about, um, at the end of the Yule Ball, the conflict between Ron and Hermione. The way these chapters open up is that Ron and Hermione seem to have moved past what happened between them at the Yule Ball. Now, this actually surprised me because normally when we see a fight between two characters in this book, they usually go days or weeks without talking to each other. We just saw that between Harry and Ron earlier in this book. And yet, Ron and Hermione seem to, they don't seem like they're back to normal, but they're at least at a point where they're being polite to each other um, and kind of moving past the words they exchanged with each other. And they sort of both seem to have decided it's not worth continuing to argue over what happened, basically. And from Hermione's perspective, I totally understand that. From Ron's perspective, I'm a little surprised, mostly because his pride was hurt. It was more of a pride thing, it seemed like. And I feel like those, that kind of hurt is a little bit tougher to let go of and move on from. So in this situation, would you have done the same thing as Ron and Hermione and sort of been like, okay, I said what I had to say and we're just going to move on from that? Or would you have sort of, you know, held a grudge about it a little bit longer? Not only that, but the, and maybe part of the reason of that is because there's something so much more important that has to be handled. And that is Rita Skeeter's story on Hagrid. This chapter, this first chapter, chapter 24, is titled Rita Skeeter's Scoop. And We had found out through Ron and Harry eavesdropping on Hagrid that he was part giant. And now Rita Skeeter somehow got that information and published this whole exposing article about Hagrid's upbringing and his his genetics and his family. And Hermione had already suspected that Hagrid was part giant. And so my question is, is what did Harry and Ron think? When they first met Hagrid, you know, because when we meet Hagrid for the first time in these books, you know, we know he's large, (laughs) we know he's a big dude, um, but we never actually, like, Harry never has a thought of, like, Hagrid being part giant. We never really have giants mentioned earlier in this series as part of this world. So what do you think they thought about Hagrid 
to explain his size? And also, what did you think? Because did it even did it even cross your mind to question what Hagrid was? Because I feel like in a fantasy story, when you're you're exposed to this entirely new world and there's all these fantastical elements, it's very easy to just not question things and sort of accept them as they come. Be like, yep, that exists. That exists too. Cool. All right, that exists. And you don't really question why it exists. So I know when I first read the series, I didn't really think about Haggard being part giant either, or if I did, I didn't really question it. I was just like, yeah, okay, cool. Like, he just, this is just who he is, and this is how he exists in this world, and I didn't really think much more about it. But now we have a real explanation as to why Haggard is as large as he is, and it poses a possible problem, because just like a lot of other things in the wizarding world, um, they tend to not, like, other creatures and so there's a big problem with Hagrid being part giant because giants are apparently super cruel and bloodthirsty and they fight all the time. So Hagrid gets very upset over this and we get a few classes with Professor Grubbly Plank and we have like a really good care of magical creatures class on unicorns which I want to touch on just for a second. So everyone really loves the class and they're like, oh, this is what I wish Care of Magical Creatures was like. You know, this is what I expected when I signed up for the class. And we want to learn about these types of animals and not the types of animals that Hagrid has been teaching us about since last year. So Professor Grubbly Plank leads this really great lesson about unicorns. And one of the things that stood out to me is that the boys have to stay outside of the paddock while the women can sort of approach the unicorn because the professor says that unicorns prefer a woman's touch and not a man's. And so I just want to, you know, what does that say about unicorns or what they sort of symbolize if women are allowed or, or if, if women are the preference over men? And unicorns tend to symbolize infinite possibility and success, and they're considered the most magical of all animals, and they're associated with wisdom and manifestation. So I'm going to pose that question again in regards to what they symbolize. You know, what does it mean that the unicorns prefer a woman's touch in this kind of situation over a man's? But also one of the things that struck me when Professor Grubblypink said this was that the only other time we have seen a man interact with a unicorn in this series is Voldemort murdering one so he can save his own life and drink its blood. So do we think that has anything to do with it? Not that specific situation, but just that example. That's the only other example we have seen of men interacting with unicorns is murdering them for their own gain and we haven't seen a woman do that in this book series before um so I just think that's interesting that we have that juxtaposition of okay the girls can approach the unicorn but the men can't and then the only other example we've seen of a in a of a unicorn before in this book has been when it's been killed in book one by a man. So what are your thoughts on that? 
But going back to Hagrid for just a second, there's a lot of talk about Dumbledore in these two chapters, specifically about him being known for giving second chances to people. And so Harry, Ron, and Hermione go out to Hogsmeade. They have a standoff in the Three Broomsticks with Rita Skeeter. And then when they come back, Hermione's like, this is ridiculous. She goes in, she knocks on Hagrid's door and tells him to open up and that it doesn't matter and that he better talk to them. And Dumbledore is the one that answers the door. And we get this moment where Dumbledore talks about how all of these parents have written in to Dumbledore saying, essentially, if you fire him, we're going to have a big problem. Because they have all of these memories of Hagrid, you know, being at school when they were at school. You know, or just being part of the presence of, of Hogwarts when they were at school. And they have all, they have all of these fond memories of him. So they're sticking up for Hagrid in these letters. What also stood out to me was that Dumbledore refused to accept Hagrid's resignation. And yet he accepted the resignation of Lupin last year when his secret of being a werewolf got leaked because the parents were not going to be happy. If Lupin is in Harry's parents' generation, I am sure there are parents of Harry's peers that knew him during that time. Maybe they didn't know he was a werewolf at that time or don't think he was when he was at school, but he is now. And yet we never hear of parents writing in to stick up for Remus Lupin. And so, you know, do they just not care enough? Or is being a werewolf more stigmatized than being a part giant? It's interesting to see how these personal stories humanize Hagrid in a big way for these people, where they have all these fond memories of him being at school. And so is this a situation where that personal connection makes more of a difference versus a teacher they may have interacted with once and didn't really have a huge impact on their school experience? Because when we have that personal connection with something or somebody, we're more willing to put in the effort to help them versus if it's, you know, a stranger or someone we just kind of know, right? You would stick up for your friends much more easily than just like someone you met two seconds ago, right? Or is this just the Slytherin in me talking? <laughs> so what do, you th- like, what, what do you think that says about the wizarding community as a whole that, you know, they do stick up for Hagrid in this circumstance, but nobody seemed to do that besides Harry last book for Lupin when he decided to resign. And also, when we talk about second chances, and we're going to talk more in depth about this in a little while, but Dumbledore giving second chances, what do you think, what do you think about that when it comes to Snape? Because we do have a moment in the corridor with Filch and Snape and Moody where Snape explicitly states that Dumbledore trusts him And Moody essentially says, well, yeah, of course, because he believes in second chances, but not everyone actually changes. Do you agree with that? You know, that sentiment that not everybody actually changes and is it worth giving second chances or not? I think that tells us a lot more about Dumbledore's character. We've been learning a a lot about him in this book. And so what do we think about that when it comes to someone we don't necessarily like? 
Snape. And I want you to put a pin in that for just a second because we will get back to him. But before we do that, I want to talk about Harry solving this clue. So Harry in these chapters just hates Cedric. (laughs) He, you know, I have talked in the last few episodes about how Cedric was sort of getting a lot of negativity from other students without really having deserved any anything, you know, specifically. But, you know, Harry now is frustrated, not just because of his hint about the egg and Harry not being able to solve it, but also, you know, Cedric took Harry's crush to the Yule Ball and, you know, they're a thing now. I totally, I totally understand where Harry's coming from now. So at least there's a reason now behind Harry's tension with Cedric. (laughs) his dislike of Cedric, you know, we have, we at least have a reason that makes sense behind it now. And so at first, as Harry's trying to figure out the clue, he's being stubborn and he's not wanting his advice. And now as he's trying to figure out, he's like, WTF, I explicitly told him what the first task was. Why wouldn't he have just told me the same thing? The first thing that stood out to me about this was that actually, what does it say about the houses? Because I don't think that Cedric is purposefully trying to be unhelpful. I think this is a how Gryffindors handle a situation and how Hufflepuff handles the situation. Like, this is how Hufflepuff returns a favor to make things fair, but also respects the rules at the same time. And it's interesting because Harry, who runs into Ludo Bagman and the Three Broomsticks, won't accept his help. Um, Ludo, you know, offers Harry help. And I think he has a point because Harry is 14 and did not sign up for this. But Ludo says, you know, we, we all want to see a Hogwarts champion. And Harry asks, well, are you helping Cedric? And he says no. So, Harry points out that since he isn't helping Cedric, like, why would Harry, like, why would he offer Harry his help and not Cedric? And so it's interesting because Harry sticks up for Cedric in this moment, too, and makes the point that Cedric is just as much of a Hogwarts champion as Harry is. And it shows that Harry cares about fairness. You know, he told Cedric about the dragons when he figured out that all the other champions knew except for Cedric. He was like, hey, bro, this task, it's dragons. So maybe Gryffindor and Hufflepuff overlap with their respect of having things be fair and on a level playing field. But while Gryffindor will give you the answer, Hufflepuff will lead you in the correct direction to figure out the answer. So while Gryffindor will just tell everybody, oh, it's this, Hufflepuff will be, will give you a hint like Cedric did so that, you know, you have an advantage on figuring out the answer, but you still have to do the work yourself and figure out the answer, which with a clue like this, which seems very difficult to figure out, I can see how that would be frustrating to Harry, but I just think this is a Gryffindor versus Hufflepuff how they handle situations differently. So Harry finally decides to take Cedric's advice. He goes to the prefect's bathroom to figure out the clue, and we run into Moaning Myrtle. 
and she has been a full character in and of herself since we have met her in uh, book two. But her behavior in this scene, I think, crosses a line. She actively spies on people taking a bath, which is a huge violation of privacy and consent. And Myrtle also stalked the girl who caused her death enough that the ministry had to get involved and she had to return to Hogwarts. When it comes to something like that, I understand her wanting to get revenge on Olive Hornby. Would you have done the same thing with someone who bullied you to the point where you hid in a bathroom and then sort of just happened to get killed by, like, because of being in the wrong place in the wrong time? It's not like Olive Hornby specifically meant for her to die. Um, would you also haunt the person that was responsible or not? Also, going along with this, is that there's a portrait of a mermaid in this bathroom. And does this pose the same problem as Myrtle being able to, like, hide out and watch people bathe there? Does the mermaid respect privacy? Does she ask if she can stay? Because we hear about her showing off, you know, flipping her fins and showing off when Cedric was in the bath. So did Cedric allow her to stay? It, you know, does she... You know, if she's showing off for Cedric, she's clearly looking at him. And I understand Cedric's very handsome. But did she did she ask, can I stay? Do you want me to leave while you are in the bathroom bathing? It just seems a little, a lot not right at all. But Harry figures out the clue. And it has to do, the second task has to do with mermaids in the lake. And something is going to be taken from Harry that he's going to really want back. And he's going to have an hour to look for it. Otherwise, he's going to lose it forever. So what do you think is important enough to Harry that they would take for the second task? Another thing I want to talk about in these two chapters is Barty Crouch. So we've been told that he's ill. But we also find out that no one actually really knows where he is. This is the second person that's gone missing in this book. But Harry sees him on the map. So he, you know, he's leaving the prefect's bathroom. He's checking the map to make sure the coast is clear so he can get back to the common room safely. And Harry can't leave anything alone. So he needs to go investigate because he sees that Barty Crouch is standing in Snape's office. So two things. One, what would Barty Crouch be doing in Snape's office? And connected to that, why are all of the officials in this tournament acting sketchy? And two, Harry just spent the first task learning how to do a summoning charm. Why couldn't he have just accioed back the map and the egg and just hid everything under the cloak? And then when the professors investigated, they would have seen nothing and he wouldn't have been in the predicament that he was. Just wondering. So we see... Filch and Snape and Moody in this scene. So Filch thinks that Peeves stole the egg and is just wreaking havoc in the castle. Snape is up because he heard the noise, but then he passes by his office and finds that the door was open and someone was in there. And he talks about how Peeves could not have gotten into his office because it he it's sealed with a spell that only a wizard could break. And I have a feeling what he really means here is that it's sealed with a spell that only a very talented wizard could break. Because otherwise, if any wizard can break it, what's the point? I think Snape is a little smarter than that. And we know that Crouch 
is probably a very talented wizard because he's talented when it comes to pretty much everything else. But it still begs the question as to what he was looking for in Snape's office and why he was at Hogwarts at the hour that he was at Hogwarts. Another weird thing in this exchange is that when Moody enters the scene, Snape doesn't want him to know that someone was in his, uh, in his office. And it becomes very obvious that they definitely do not trust each other at all, which is when they get into that exchange, talking about how Dumbledore gives second chances and Dumbledore trusts Snape, but you know, not everybody changes, even if you give them a second chance. Things get very interesting in this exchange. And in this moment, Snape totally figures out that Harry is the one that that's behind the noise um, because he recognizes the parchment and he knows that Harry has an egg and he knows that he has an invisibility cloak. So he's, he puts all the pieces together and is like, Harry Potter's responsible. I need to go find him. And Moody covers for Harry. It kind of reminds me of that moment in The Incredibles where the teacher catches on video Dash putting a tack on his chair. And it's, you know, he, and everyone's like, why do you have it out for Dash? And they make him think like he's crazy for suspecting Dash, even though he's totally right. Dash 100% put a tack on his chair. So there's an exchange here between Moody and Snape where Moody talks about how he himself and Dumbledore are interested in knowing who has it in for Harry, implying that Snape does, which, yeah, that's probably true since it's been no secret from day one that Snape hates Harry. But do we think Snape is behind everything that's happened so far? Like, does he hate him enough to have put in the effort to submit his name in the tournament? Because I feel like that's a special kind of hate to go out of your way to expend energy on a plan like that. But Snape gets fired up pretty much as soon as he realizes that Harry is behind whatever happened in this hallway and he's ready to like feel around for him in the darkness even though he can't see him. But with Snape, we have a huge bombshell that's implied in this chapter. Did you guys catch it? Before Harry leaves the prefect's bathroom, he checks the map. And in the bottom left-hand corner is Snape's office. And this is where he sees that Barty Crouch is in it. When Moody is looking at the map, he says, If there's one thing I hate, it's a Death Eater that walked free. And he's focused on the left corner of the map. And the next line goes, Harry stared at him. Could Moody possibly mean what Harry thought he meant? So what do you guys think of that? Do you think Moody's telling the truth? Is this what he meant when he said that Dumbledore believes in second chances, but some people just never change? Or is he talking about something else entirely? Because this says left corner, it doesn't say bottom left or top left. Who knows? But it did stand out that he's looking at the same region of the map where Snape's office is, and says, if there's one thing I hate, it's a Death Eater that walked free. So I need all of your theories and thoughts on Snape and this exchange between the two in my inbox at firstyearspodcast at gmail.com. You can also shoot me a DM at firstyearspod on Twitter and Instagram. For next time, you need to read chapters 26 and 27, we will be talking about the second task. I hope you are as excited as I am. And I 
We'll see you guys next time. First Years is a production of Matchbook. It's produced by Quinn Parker and myself, Sarah Jones Dittmeyer. All sources can be found in our show notes or on our website at authorsarahjonesdittmeyer.info forward slash first years podcast. That's Sarah with an H, and Dittmeyer is spelled D I T T M E I E R. Please remember that staying a Harry Potter fan is the biggest form of revolt that you can have, and we are committed to continuing to make this fandom and this community safe and welcoming to everybody.